Well, I wonder if you're tempted to feel at times that your Christian faith is really quite unimpressive. Whether you're tempted to think that going along to church doesn't make that big a deal, doesn't really make a difference, doesn't seem to have any particular consequence. And these days, maybe you're even beginning to think that maybe Christianity or going to church or following Jesus is to become something of a punching bag where people can take shots at you. Uh, they can criticise you. They have so many things to complain about when it comes to religion, when it comes to the Christian faith. And maybe uh, you've been persuaded that things are on the decline, that the Christian faith was once a very significant part of our world, but it's now shrinking and becoming less and less relevant. Well, the Apostle Paul is speaking to these Christians in Colossae about how absolutely, astonishingly significant the Christian message is. And I want us to realise that he's writing this around about 60 AD. So give or take a few years uh, one way or the other, about 30 years after a carpenter's son had been executed on a cross outside Jerusalem, Paul writes these words to say that that person is the most significant being in the universe. Now, we might think, okay, Christianity, it's a world religion now. There's roughly two billion people who in one form or other kind of agree to being Christian, in inverted commas. But at that time, it's not a world religion. At that time, it would probably be more accurate to say it's a fairly active Jewish sect. There's a bunch of people who are getting together in homes in various towns and cities around the Middle Eastern area. That's what it was. And it's against that backdrop that I want you to hear what Paul says to the Colossians. And think about it. You know, if, if Tychicus is reading out this letter in the household of Philemon to the Colossian believers, this is what they're hearing. Same thing that you and I are hearing now. He says this, of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. It's a man that he's talking about. It's a man in history, a man in geography, a man who you could hear, you could touch, you could smell. This was a real person and he's saying he's the one who created everything. And he's going to go on to say not only did he create everything, but he is also the head of the church, his body. Now the implications of those two things are absolutely massive. And they don't give us any scope to think that Christianity is a little subset sect that has very little relevance. If this is true, then it has absolute relevance. So let's have a think about it. And I want to look at the two parts. And I've kind of printed this out in a way that shows you the structure of this part of Colossians. First of all, Jesus being the image of the invisible God, then Jesus being the head of the church, and then you, Colossians, or you, Salt, how do we respond? First thing, the image of the invisible God. Quite simply, if you want to know what God looks like, God who is spirit, then if you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. 
Jesus gives you the full picture of who God is. He is the perfect image. It's true to say that all people convey the image of God, but Jesus is the, capital the, image of God. If you want to know who Jesus is, then you look at him, and if you know who Jesus is, then you know who the Father is, because if you've seen the, the Jesus, then you've seen the Father. And you can know the Father through seeing Jesus. Jesus is God, and he's God in the flesh. But before he was God in the flesh, notice here that he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, that, that's a difficult phrase in a way, and it's been the subject of misunderstanding. So back in the 4th century, there were these people who followed a guy called Arius. They became known as the Arians. And they did not believe that Jesus was God. And they go to this passage where it says, See, he's the firstborn of creation. Born. He's the firstborn. Jesus was born. He can't be God because he's born of Mary. He's just another human like you and like me. But that's to misunderstand firstborn in the context. Firstborn means the one who's preeminent. Firstborn is the one who has number one place. He has the primary status. And the Arians and the modern day Arians, who are called Jehovah's Witnesses, they cannot take this and look at the whole context and think that Jesus is simply a created being. Because listen to what it says. He is the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him. And you want to know what everything is? Well, in heaven and on earth. Invisible and visible. In other words, it doesn't matter where you are, everything that is around about was created by Jesus. He is the creator, not the created. And whether you can see it or whether you can't see it, it was created. And even all of those rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms or on the earthly realms, they were created by him as well. All things have been created through him and for him. And here's the summary. He's before all things. And by him all things hold together. You see, you can take firstborn as a word and go, oh, Jesus was firstborn, therefore he can't be God. Or you can read the passage. Take your pick. Because it's saying absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Look at all the italics there. All creation, everything, all things, all things, all things. Created by him and for him and through him. And here we have something which is critically, under, it's critically important to understanding who we are as well. You see, everything was created by him, that is, by the Son of God. It was created through him, God created by his word, that is, Jesus. And it was created for him. A first century carpenter's son itinerant preacher, martyr, who people said had been raised from the dead, he was around before the whole cosmos was created. And what's more, he created the whole cosmos. And what's even more, he sustains it, he keeps it going. And what's even more, he did it for him. Now, let me tell you a story. I was invited to marry a young couple 25, nearly 26 years ago. Uh, a couple of my closest friends. And they were an extraordinary couple. 
Uh, she had long blonde hair, so did he. Uh, they liked a number of different things. Um, they had very different musical tastes. Hers was ABBA and his was Megadeth um, or some band like that. They had all sorts of different things. Um, some that drew them together and made them look the same. Some that made them look very, very different. And as I got up to preach at their wedding, having described them and talked about their relationship and how it had developed and, and who they'd become as a couple, I said, Marcus and Kelly, what a terrific couple, aren't they? And everyone's going, yeah, 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 yeah. They were made for each other, weren't they? And everyone's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, let me tell you a secret. Marcus and Kelly were not made for each other. Kelly nearly got up and hit me. <laughs> Why could I say that? Because they asked me to preach on this passage. And it tells me who they were made for. They were made for Jesus. They were made by him and through him and for him. Now there's another implication of that. That means they're manufactured. They've actually been created with purpose. Uh, manufactured goods are manufactured with a reason, with an outcome, with, with some significant results. Well, we've been made for a purpose. We've been made for Jesus. Many people will spend their life just trying to work out what the purpose of, of existence is, what the purpose of their life is. Well, here it is in black and white. We've been made for Jesus. So that's a pretty big thing to say about a guy who was killed outside Jerusalem only three decades before. But that goes a long way to explain why this is now a worldwide religion. Second thing, uh, the second paragraph here, he is also the head of the body, the church. The word church there means assembly or gathering. Um, don't think the church as in the worldwide congregation uh, or congregations of, of people. Don't think the institution. Think a gathering. So he is the head of the body, that is the church. Um, and I take it the body that Paul is writing this letter to is the gathering in Philemon's house in Colossae. Um, we, we know that from reading the other letter that he wrote at the same time to Philemon. And as he writes this, he is speaking about Jesus and says that he is not only the firstborn over all creation, he's also the firstborn from the dead. Now bear in mind again, firstborn doesn't mean he was born out of death so much as to say, now out of death, having been raised, he again is the preeminent one. He's number one. He has authority. He rules over. He is the head of the church. And, and the church, in its local expression, being this body of Christians who are gathered in this home or this body of Christians that are gathered in this building. But in the heavenly picture, this is every single person who bows the knee to Jesus. That is the ultimate assembly, the ultimate church. That is the full expression of his body. And Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the one who is to have first place, not only in creation, but in the new creation, 
He has reconciled all things to himself. Look at, look at the way this pans out. The firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, Jesus is bringing about a reconciliation of all things to himself. He's reconciling the whole of the creation, earth and heaven, the whole cosmos is being restored into right relationship with God. Now, we're not told exactly how all that's going to work out just yet, but keep coming back and keep reading Colossians and we'll discover how this is. But friends, this is an extraordinary thing. This is against the backdrop of a world that is in a mess, a world where there's conflict and fighting and a world where there's chaos and confusion, a world where there's decay and corruption. This is a world where people have rejected God the Creator and now the whole world is suffering with the pain of that choice. And Jesus has come to reconcile everything back to God. And he does it, notice, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, reconciliation for the Apostle Paul, as he speaks about Jesus being the one who comes to reconcile, is bigger than just uniting people to God. It's actually uniting the whole creation back to God. It's uniting Jews and Gentiles together under God. It's creating a new body, a gathering, a church, where Jesus is the head that has a, an impact then through the whole of the created order. In fact, if you were to look at another passage, you might want to look up another time, is Romans 8, where it says the creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the revelation of the children of God. So, that, so the created order is to be put right, but we see that it's to be put right because of what God is doing through Christ in his death and in his resurrection to unite people to himself and that will have an impact on everything. Now that's pretty heady stuff, but that's what we've got here being introduced. So he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, all things made by him and through him and for him. He's now also the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, to reconcile everything to himself. And how then does this impact us? Well, as Paul writes to the Colossians, you'll notice the way his language changes. If you look at the printout there, uh, I've highlighted some words. You notice in verse 15, it's about he, and that is Jesus. Verse 17, he is. Verse 18, he is. Verse 18 again, he is. The first two major sections are all about Jesus. But this last paragraph is all about you. Now the you isn't immediately you and me. The you was initially the church in Colossae. And so if you were sitting there listening to this be read, you'd hear this extraordinary grand picture of Jesus and then another extraordinary grand picture of Jesus and then as it's read out, you'd be thinking, oh, and you. 
So this is for you, this is for me. What is he saying? Well, he brings it home. He says, this is you. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, as expressed in your evil actions. This is very important to see this because he's just been talking about reconciliation. Who do you reconcile? Well, you reconcile people who are alienated. You take the alienated and you bring them together and you reconnect them and you reconcile them. And we were alienated fundamentally from God. And we were hostile towards God in our minds. So I, I tend to think that most of the time people are fairly neutral or people are at best apathetic about God. But apathy towards the loving one who created you is hostility. And that's the case for every being. And that expresses itself in evil actions. That is the past. But now, verse 22, here is the present. So the past was we were cut off from God. The present is, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. See, the past was separation from God. The, the present is reconnection with God. As you think about your past, there was a time when you were disconnected from God. As you think about your present, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you can say, but now you've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus on the cross for you. That's a present reality. But there's a purpose in this for the future. He says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. And here's the future bit. In order to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. So in the past you were alienated and that led to evil. In the present, you've been reconciled and that will lead to being presented to Jesus, holy, faultless and blameless before him. See, there's the promise. The promise is that because of the work of Jesus, we will one day be completely transformed. And you know, we need to be completely transformed if we are to come into the presence of Jesus. Because the holy God will not tolerate sin and evil. But because of Jesus, we can be cleansed, forgiven, reconciled and united. And the promise is that one day we will stand before God, not based on our own righteousness, but because we've been washed clean through the death of Jesus. So there it is, the past, the present and the future. But that's not all. Look at verse 23. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel is proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. There is a contingency clause. And friends, I think we need to get this. There's a purpose in what he's writing here. Yes, it is Christ who is above all. Yes, it is Christ who has reconciled all. Yes, it is the fully, complete, perfect work of Jesus to make us right with God. But we are called to respond. 
We need to take hold of that gift. And we become Christians by grasping the gift of what Jesus has done, by putting our faith, that is our trust in Jesus' death, in our place. And by turning from serving ourselves to serve God. Faith and repentance. So what is he saying here? You get this, you'll, you'll be okay, you'll be presented before Jesus if... If what? Well, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in faith and not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Let, let me give you an illustration um, and then I'm going to undo the illustration. But the illustration is this. Uh, if you were to get from here to Perth and there's an aeroplane at Port Macquarie Airport, you need to take a step of faith to get onto that aeroplane. And you need to turn aside from being outside the plane to turn into the plane. And that plane will get you to Perth. And so when you arrive in Perth, you can look back and say, the plane did all the work. It got me to Perth. You wouldn't say, I did the work. I had the faith to get onto the plane. You wouldn't say, I did the work because I actually turned around and walked up that step inside the aircraft. No, the work is the plane. If, and this is a big if, you stay in the plane. You can jump out. I know you can, right? Because I've travelled a lot. In fact, I became a platinum frequent flyer over the last four years which meant that I nearly always got to sit in one of those chairs with the extra leg room. And so I'd get a personal message from the flight attendant every time I sat down. She would tell me about this door and the lever that you can lift and how you can push it out. You know, it has never entered my head to push open that door <laughs> until she started telling me how. <laughs> And I've often wondered what it would be like to push open the door while I'm flying. But I've seen enough movies to think that I'd probably be sucked out that door as well. So you think, that's just stupid. Why would you get off the aeroplane? Well, let me put it in other terms. What will get you to be right with God for all eternity is the finished work of Jesus. You need to take hold of that through faith and repentance. If... You continue in faith, steadfastly trusting in the hope of the gospel, then you can be absolutely sure that Jesus will present you pure and faultless before God at the end of time. You can be certain, unless you jump off, unless you jump out. Now, having said that, the word that gets used here is grounded. And, and as I was working out the illustration with the aeroplane, I thought, well, that was a bit dumb because the, the word you need to remember from this passage is grounded. And that's got nothing to do with aeroplanes being grounded, all right? Uh, so let's come back to this verse, verse 23, because he's going to build on it. And this is one of the big themes for the letter. Um, he says in verse 23, If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, he's saying there is never a day, there is never a place, there is never a context 
when you should stop trusting in Jesus. You've just got to keep trusting in Jesus. Only and always in Jesus. And that's what it is to be grounded and continuing in steadfastness. Come with me to Colossians chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. I think are in many ways the kind of hinge of this letter. They're, they're the, the key two verses, I think, for understanding how this letter works. Let me read them to you. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. In other words, what he's saying is just as you started with Christ and got onto the aeroplane, stay in the aeroplane. Or just as you sunk roots into the ground with Christ, only bear fruit that comes from those roots in Christ. Or, in other words, just as you are grounded in, in, the, in the absolute foundations of Jesus, only ever build into your life on that foundation. Don't run here or there trusting in other things. Only and always in Jesus. See, Paul's writing to Christians who've started their walk with Jesus. And this is a letter to keep them going. And the way to keep going is to keep looking to Jesus. Is to keep growing on Jesus. Last week, we saw two words in the first 14 verses. Two words that stood out in particular. Thankful and fruitful. The Christian life was to be thankful and fruitful. Here are two words that I'd love you to remember for this week. That the Christian life is to be grounded and growing. Grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and growing in and from him. Because you've been made by him and through him and for him, you are to be all about Jesus. Thanks.